of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 448. It is me and Jason today, and we're going to come back on big data and privacy. As we move forward in time, this idea gets more important, but not from the way we would normally look at it. I mean, we'll point out things that are important to comprehend, but people absolutely have to start acting like their data is valuable, like it was a dollar bill in their pocket and not so freely give it away. Hopefully we can paint the picture of why that's true as we get in. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a pleasant good morning. I don't even remember. Um, how long? Do you even remember how long it's been since we did the last data episode? Um, they were different, though, because we did AI or something. Do you recall? Oh, about three or four years ago at this point. Well, that was with Shoshana Zuboff's book. What was it called? It was called uh, something cap surveillance capitalism. Yes. That was like the first book, just so people know. And I'll give it to you right out of the gate. It's like four inches thick, this book, but um, it's mainstreamy. But the reason it's mainstreamy is because the author had access to boardrooms and access to big companies. And the fact that it's mainstreamy would turn most people off, I think. But the point is, is where they're talking about what the technology can do all those years ago. Um, they're being honest, but really it's the tip of the iceberg because she doesn't draw the lines. And all the way through this book, which I consider being one of the first real big mainstream books written on data um, and what it means, they never went all the way to show what this actually means. And part of it is they keep saying over and over in this book, this is going to be a massive problem, but the people who did it didn't know any better, this kind of laissez-faire attitude. But anyhow, let's jump in, Jason. Let's put this train on the track. The term big data describes the incredible amount of data predominantly about individuals, which is continuously being gathered from nearly every electronic gadget that exists in our world today a huge amount of which is connected to the internet and phone home on their own to hand over the information that is collected on you to any number of recipients. So how can we paint the picture here, Jason? How can we show and demonstrate to the minds listening that not only is cash not king, and it hasn't been probably since the turn of the millennium, and clearly the queue up for that to be true went back probably decades uh, because this plan is a long-standing plan, what would you know? I got an idea. You know those little uh, iRobots? They're round and they're all over the internet doing silly things with the iRobots that sweep your floor. Do you know that some of the biggest makers of those are taking measurements of your house and selling that data? That's how in- insidious this has become. Even your damn vacuum. And Jason and I have done episodes on the Internet of Things, so start to comprehend what we're talking about. Most people think, I I don't care if anyone knows when I have a cup of coffee, but you should. Um, I mean, what would you add, Jason? Can you? How do we even start to illustrate the catastrophic nature of all this data collection? Well, take a look around your house. Think about what it is you do every day and what you do those things with. And then think back 30 years. How different are those tasks? How different are the events in your life compared to 30 years ago? Now think about how many of those things are now involved with electronic gadgets. Every single one of those electronic gadgets is gathering information about you. 
And make no mistake, if it is digital, it is gathering data. And here's the thing that I noticed, like when my mom was still with me, she had gotten to the point where she was parking in front of the television. She pretty much lost her mind, uh, but it kept her calm enough if she just had something to watch. She'd already lost the, the ability to distinguish that it, she, she, she acted as if she was looking through a window just to make the point. But um, my sister replaced her television because the one she had broke and she got one of these Roku TVs. And so I knew that I'm not going to be a part of the internet of things. And so we plugged it in and got her going. And I didn't even realize that it automatically connected to the Wi-Fi signal that I'm not even providing. Um, and by the time I got to where I am now, um, I don't use apps, but what I do use is security type devices and data collection killing devices. And I get an alarm every 20 seconds that data is being collected if that Roku television is on. And I've already began to make a plan. There are refrigerators in my home that I know are using much more energy than I would like. But the option is, is if I get a new refrigerator, the same thing is going to be going on. So I'm already implementing plans. How do I block a new refrigerator from getting online? And this is the game we're about to play. Anyhow, it's all you. Oh, did you say security devices? Well, those are watching you. Of course. There are places like Privacy Hawk and others, which a friend of mine who's a bit of a code ninja, like as big a code ninja as you could be, hired by some very powerful places for his forensic online abilities. And we went through a service where they scrub your data. And here's what was so interesting to me. At first, I was doubtful, but what I found was all these places that got contacted as we went through the process of notifying them that you, I do not give you permission to collect, sell, or save my data. Some of them responded immediately like they were bending over backwards. And it began to occur to me, this relates to our legal episodes. What it came down to is who owns your name? Who owns the things that are directly connectable to you? And it just was shocking to me that so many places quickly responded and said, we're on it. And by the way, when I had gone all the way through that process, we had used one of these truth finder type things. I forget what it is. One of the places my friend works does backgrounds on people. And we did a background on me and it had everything from roughly, wait for it, 2001 forward. So what does that tell you? But when we got done, there was nothing in a truth finder. So I knew that it did have an effect. The problem is this, all these places say, okay, we won't be selling your data. We won't be doing, but you know, damn well, that the people that are interested in what the data brings, they're keeping what they've collected. They're just not sharing it online anymore. I would guess anyhow, Jason. In a very generic sense, a popular interpretation of big data refers to extremely large data sets. A National Institute of Standards and Technology report defined big data as consisting of extensive data sets, primarily in the characteristics of volume, velocity, and or variability that require a scalable architecture for efficient storage, manipulation, and analysis. Some definitions state that big data as an amount of data that exceeds a petabyte, one million gigabytes. Another definition for big data is the exponential increase and availability of data in our world. And this data, especially in relation to your privacy, 
is what we will be discussing further. Jason, even this is trying to lead your mind astray. Oh, a petabyte, 1 million gigabytes, that's a lot. But what it actually says, the amount that exceeds a petabyte. Now, I've been online almost as long as most of the public could have been in lo- online in any mini- meaningful way. My first jobs were internet startups. I suspect that a petabyte is collected the first hour of every day. Consider what we're talking about here. Every single cell phone. If you took young people alone and thought about every single cell phone, how many pictures, how many texts, how, you know, everything that's done, how much web surfing, all of that is being collected. And you should also realize that it's not necessarily by the same place, but there has to be an overarching place because what they're telling you is they need a scalable architecture. What does that tell you? That they got to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's not enough that they have an infinite data set, and it is infinite. Consider all the data that could be collected in a day, and by the time you're even starting to deal with that, the next day's data is already rolling. I would call it an infinite data set. And the reason it's scalable is because they're not quite collecting everything they can yet. Um, Think logically. If our population is truly dropping, which Jason and I tried to show has been dropping since the 70s, but since 2020, if the population is truly dropping, then why does this need to be scalable? It should be scaling down, less data to collect, but that's not the case. And the reason I would put forward, Jason, is because now they want your refrigerator, they want your coffee, they they want it all. And by the way, any car that is newer than, no, I just looked this up. So I had a 2014, which couldn't collect data at all. I later turned that in and I got a newer one and it was right on the cusp. So roughly in the area of 2019, 2020 is when now even your vehicles are going to be collecting everything. If you have a car that's new, like right now, the data collection is off the freaking charts. I mean, I'm just saying, Jason. If you have one of those cars with a great big central computer in the center of your dashboard, I'm pretty sure it knows just about every time you hit the McDonald's drive-thru. Here's the thing. So I I went into my dealer and uh, I said something about a mechanic and they said, well, we don't have mechanics anymore. And I laughed because I thought they they weren't joking. They said, we have technicians now. And it's so bizarre that in certain cars, they said they had cars on the lot that had over 20... I think they said 20 or 25 mini computers all around the car with the cameras that are taking pictures of the speed limits and everything going on. And they said, if you get in a minor accident and one of those gets damaged, almost always the insurance company is going to total your car. Now, this is a whole other thing. Whose car is that? And this begins to demonstrate that it's really not your car. How can a third-party insurer come in and say your property is now totaled um, and then the title is ruined. You, you can't have a car with a title after that. And this begins to show where we're going. Um, Jason, I'm just trying to figure out ways to show the extensive nature of where we're headed. Well, the other thing is that it came into our lives bit by bit. So people are used to the concept as far as electronics being everywhere and the internet being everywhere. It's just expected at this point. You know, it's a, it's a bit like a drug dealer, right? You know, here, your first hit's free. Here, take this ecstasy. You'll never, you've never felt like this in your life. Well, you want more? Now it costs. It's almost like they used the drug dealer profile 
And of course, we've referenced the, the CEO of Sun Microsystems, which was a big deal back in the day. I don't remember if it was Java or what they were involved in. I've forgotten. It's been so long. But in 1999, telling you there is no more privacy, no one believed it. But in that statement, he informed you that you have all these cool, free features. And he pointed out that what you had traded was privacy for free email and all these other things. No one believed him back in the day. Anyhow. According to recent studies, the entire world will produce a little over 180 zettabytes of data by the year 2025. That is an insane amount of information creation, copying, and capturing going on in the cyberspace environment. 2022 Big Data Statistics report that there has been a sudden increase in overall information consumption. The trend is stated as to have started back in 2020 when considerably more people were staying at home because of the reasons. At that time, the amount of data being produced had shot up from 41 to 64.2 zettabytes in one year. Experts predict that the almost 200 zettabytes of data will require more storage space. The repository segment will need to grow at 19.2% annually between 2020 and 2025 to accommodate this vast amount of information. Maybe they just should have said 19.1 to make their point. When they start saying that it's an insane amount of data, my first question would be, how do the experts have any idea how much data we're talking about? And if you sat down and did your work, I guess you could get there. But think of what it means. Like I just watched a movie with my wife the other day about the younger generation. My heart goes out to them because I know what happened in my generation with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. If you would have thrown in the connectivity that now the young people have, I'm not even sure what would have happened. The point is all that data is collected and it quickly creates a psychological profile on you, but more so it shows that you're typical of a larger group or a subset of other groups to the point where the predictability of what you're going to do next has been off the charts, I'm guessing, and I'm not totally guessing, about 98% accurate for a number of years now. And this is exactly why people think that their computer is listening to them, which it is, just not in the way they think, because they say, I talked about this, that, or the other thing the other day, and now here's the ad offering it to me. It didn't spy on, well, it did spy on you, but it didn't bug you in the way you're thinking. What actually happened is it's been collecting vast amounts of data on you. Algorithms had their way with that data, and they knew probably before you that you were going to want the thing that you're now being shown an ad for. What's worse is they will also know if you buy the item, which will confirm their their prediction in the first place, which doesn't really need confirming. Um, I mean, what would you add, Jason? It's, it's, it's crazy when you get to comprehend what's actually going on. Well, I want to know where all the servers are that's collecting all this stuff. Who owns them? Where were they built? Who's funding it? I mean, I'm assuming it's got to be giant server farms. It is. We kind of know. We are in our one, but I think it's Utah or something. There are massive data infrastructure places that are bigger than football fields, multiple football fields. And what's interesting is they're always out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, One of my friends was talking about this, but just suffice it to say, yeah, they're here. They're usually out in the boonies somewhere um, with a dirt road (laughs) part of the way. Um, I don't know if that that was true because I looked at them some years ago, but this is where they're 
supposedly uh, housing so much of the data. And I think it's far beyond server farms at this point, by the way. Going back to the year 2001, industry analyst Doug Laney defined the three V's of big data. The first one is volume. The unprecedented explosion of data means that the digital universe will reach 180 zettabytes, that which is 180 followed by 21 zeros, by the year 2025. The challenge with data volume, however, is not so much in how to store it all as it is in how to identify relevant data within these gigantic data sets that are collected and make good use of it. All right, so many things we could add here. The three V's, is anyone missing the fact that V is the master builder number? It's 22. Um, but it's interesting to me that they keep pointing out 2025 because as we've heard from past work that we've done, uh, the claim is, is that by 2025 or at 2025, the entirety of the online world will be run by what people like to call AI. I don't like to call it that. It's just freaking code. It's algorithms. But the challenge of how to get through it, there was a time when I had not an inside view, but a pretty high level view of people who were getting data at a very low level. The problem became is there was no regular way to do it. You got this data and they had these, those people were doing like databases. So what heading does this bit of data we collected go under? It wasn't labeled properly, but they solved that problem a long time ago is what I was told. Now algorithms, autonomous, figure out using probability and their ability to prediction where the data should go if we were looking at it as a database sheet where there's a header. This is ages. These numbers that we just got are ages. This other thing is you know, gender. Um, they, they had to automate the algorithms because they had so much data, they couldn't database it. So that problem is solved far in the past. There was something else I was going to add, but I forgot what it was. The second V is velocity. As the technology has progressed year after year, data has been generated at an ever-accelerating pace. Every single minute, Google receives 3.8 million search queries. Email users send 156 million messages. Facebook users upload 243,000 photos. The challenge for data scientists is to find ways to collect, process, and make use of huge amounts of data as it comes in. So in one way, I think this the idea they're expressing here from the mainstream information is partially true, but in another way, I think the problem is actually mostly behind them. Think about what it means to go onto YouTube and be one of the however many users that are on there and you just got censored for a video. There is no room or no corporate headquarters or no decentralized staff big enough to deal with every video put up. And that's been true for a long time. Now, if you have paid attention to how people get censored and how their stuff gets deleted, which came out in the open, as far as I know, uh, when I was deleted in the fall, October, to be specific, of 2017. What's going on there is this is an automated process now. Now, we are now in October of 2022, and we just saw a bunch more people lose their platforms. But this time, there were no strikes on many of the ones I've heard about, and they just simply deleted with no other information or no reason given, just you're gone. It smacks of total automation. And if you see where this is going, in every other service we've ever had where you get 
a supposed service from somebody. There was a phone number to call. You could complain. You could say, let me see the manager. But what's actually changed is the nature of the service. You see, before you were hiring someone to provide the service. Now what's going on is you are taking the service and you are the product. And the reason you are the product is because you create data. And the reason that matters is because data is king. And to make the point, to tie it to the overall truth about what we see going on in the world that we've covered, I did, I told you about like the truth, you know, the background searching apps. A friend of mine was hired by a really high powered place and he just did a background on me. They knew absolutely nothing about me before 2001. Do you get what I'm pointing to? From 2001 forward, they had it all. And at first, it was just, oh, you worked here, you did this, you did that uh, kind of information. But as time has gone on, they list every place that you've ever lived. And none of it was before 2000. Well, that's not true. Some of it was before 2001, but I figured that out too, because I think it was the phone number or the mail or some service that we had, had the old address on it, but it listed out my family to 17 people. And that wasn't necessarily my family. Those were just people that I'd associated with, but the truth was I'd associated them, you know, more than other people, but there only should have been five people in my family, my immediate family. So just to make the point, when the people were trying to, I'll just call it database information, Part of what went on, and by the way, this is partially covered in Shoshana Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism. What they did is they created algorithms, which most people will call AI. But what they then did after they beat the Chinese game Go, they learned that if they created the algorithms to be able to create mini algorithms to solve particular problems along the way, back in the day, they beat the game Go in 72 hours. And they've been trying to do that for a long, long time. Supposedly, that is part of how they dealt with no commonality in the data. Like they collected all this data and it didn't say, this is age data, this is that data. Um, they had a real problem. Uh, in the old days, they needed to have a label on the data to put it in a database and there needed to be a header. This is age, you know, I've already said it. But what they did is they let algorithms do it. And this is all going to a very scary place because with this amount of data, what it actually means logically, provably, is that algorithms are doing so many calculations in a minute or a second or however you want to put it down, no human being could possibly ever comprehend how the, the arrival point was arrived at. Suppose that it was slow and they did 100 calculations a second. Even if it was only 100 calculations a second and there were three minutes to look at, no person could possibly comprehend that amount of data. What's actually going on is millions or who knows what they're up to. Are they up to trillions of calculations a second? I don't know. I would just be guessing. The point I'm making is it's a little matrix-like because what that means is a human being can never fully understand exactly how the conclusions were reached. The last V is variety. Data comes in a variety of forms. Structured data is that which can be organized neatly within the columns of a database. This type of data is relatively easy to enter, store, query, and analyze. Unstructured data is more difficult to sort and therefore extract value from. But it will still be done. 
Examples of unstructured data would include scraping emails, social media posts, and word processing documents. A variety of things can also be gleaned from audio, video, and photo files, as well as from web pages. Pretty much, if it exists on the internet or even just as a file somewhere, there is data to be collected, sorted, and used. Yeah, that's the facts, Jack. So think about what they've just done here in this mainstream breakdown. They give you three Vs, volume, velocity, and variety. So they have taken taken an infinite data set and they, they've thought about it the way I think about things. Well, that's too complex for my mind to wrap around. So I'm going to begin to simplify it. You see what we're getting at here? So this unknowable amount of data has now been thought about with three words that start with V and they're telling you flat out. I didn't even realize this was in the notes, Jason, exactly what I just told you. The unstructured data is no longer a problem because in the same way they can predict that next week you're going to want a new pair of shoes and it'll be 98% accurate. They're using similar methods to take the unstructured data and deal with it, but that's not even the half of it. This all started to be as people were just making new things for online. There was no commonality. But as we see corporations consume other corporations and merge and fewer and fewer and the monoliths like Amazon and Google, they become the gold standard for how everything is structured online. And the idea of unstructured data over time will go away because the system will automatically sort it. And it's just it's mind blowing when you think about it. The phenomenon of big data is a relatively recent development that started because companies as a whole started to gather increasing amounts of data about its users. New technologies that are constantly emerging in an ever more digitized world that are connected and intertwined with the internet has been one of the key drivers of the value of big data. Governments of the world and their subsidiary organizations are also in on this. In a way, if you want to be honest, governments have lost almost all their power now to corporations. And why? Because of what we're talking about. The government doesn't have a time machine, nor does the government have the best and the brightest among us or the most technological, but corporations do. Do you see how this lopsided world came to be? Then pretty soon, the governments are begging the corporations for the thing they want that they can't produce themselves. Uh, in a way, I suspect this is how things have become so one-sided, where truly corporations have most of the power in the world. An extremely common example that affects nearly everyone who interacts with the internet these days would be the insane amounts of information that Google and all the companies under Alphabet Incorporated gathers about its users on all of the various platforms that the mega corporation owns and controls. Every scrap of information in your Gmail account, YouTube, and even in every Google search you do is recorded, cataloged, and used to build a psychological profile on you. In case you weren't aware, if a product is free, like a Google search, it's taking its payment for services rendered from the information that you are willingly providing which you almost certainly agree to without even a second thought. So there's some scary ideas in this paragraph that you wrote, Jason. The various platforms that a mega corporation owns. I think it was a few years ago when I began to say, every time you see a major merger of corporations, you're seeing 
the biggest problem humanity has ever faced in real time. You're watching it happen. So right now, if you were going to think, you know, let's do it by Disney, Jason. Do you remember when we were covering Disney and I wanted to list the number of corporations it owned and you looked it up and we couldn't because there were way too many? So you said, I think it was you that said, well, let's cover the businesses that it owns that are shuttered or have been closed down. That list was too big for us to cover on the air. It took like 40 minutes or something. It's ridiculous. So you can see what's going on. The most powerful thing in the world is data, and it's all being conglomerated under fewer and fewer major players. But the real kick in the cojones here is the psychological profile on you. It used to be that your medical records were sacrosanct, right? You can't, you can't look at someone's records. You can't um, do things to them because of their records. You can't, you know, all these rules of trying to keep the playing field level and people not being treated badly because of what the records, that's all out the window with these psychological profiles that have been built online, which tell things about you, which you will never know about yourself. And what it does is if you logically run it down the road a couple decades, it could come to a point where your psychological profile creates what they would call a throwaway individual for whatever reasons, or a person who can't get services because of what they know about you. And the real sad part of this is they know it to a 98%. But what's even worse is when they know a thing like that, the whole basis of a search right now is based on a psychological profile on each of us. So if they took the, the idea that people in this category are throwaway people or something like that, think of what would be served to you. It would push you in the direction that you want to go. I mean, what do you think, Jason? I mean, that's the logical way to consider this, isn't it? Yeah. This whole thing, once I started going through it, the vast numbers and the consideration of where it's all coming from, it's just astounding. And as I start getting through all this Google information, just Google alone, it's, it, it doesn't even have words. And this is such a new phenomenon. Again, think back 30 years, night and day difference. You know, here, here's another thing. You know, everyone's seen the quotes from like the circles of power where comments were made, like the general public is just mouth breathers and food eaters that contribute nothing to the world. Consider what those ideas might be, or maybe already are with the data they've collected, because in their minds, they know it's 98-ish percent accurate. And if that paints a dim picture, according to what they think is a dim picture, then what is the future of humanity? I mean, think about it. This is the kind of place living like this has to go in a direction like that in one way, shape, or form. So let's stick with Google for a bit, since it really should not be a surprise to anyone that it is the most visited website and is used by so very many people. Every month as of 2022, Google will be visited approximately 89.3 billion times. As mentioned earlier, billions of users rely on Google Daily to carry out searches for nearly anything and everything that they can think of. Apart from being a search engine, however, Google is part of the Alphabet umbrella, which provides several other tech-related services. This would include the free Gmail service, Google News, Google Shopping, and, of course, 
YouTube. There it is. You know, I should have wrote down. So I think it is six corporations in the world. Maybe it's a couple more. Let's see if I can remember. You've got Alphabet. You've got, do you remember, Jason? Because there's three from China. Alibaba is one. Tencent is one. I just can't remember. But basically what we're talking about is in your mind, you have an idea of how big Google is. Well, there's roughly, and I can't remember the number for sure, six or seven other companies that are at that level, except back when the book I've been talking about, Surveillance Capitalism, was written, they were making the claim that China was far ahead in what they called AI, what I call algorithms. And at first, I thought, how can that be? But as you read that book, she accurately tells you how the Chinese got their tech. There was a picnic in 1997 in Silicon Valley, if I remember correctly, where basically our tech was given to China. Why would they do such a thing? I think it relates exactly to what I was saying. Um, They can do what they want, right? They don't have any idea left over of laws or human rights in the way we did. And so what they did is they created Alibaba Tencent, and I can't remember the name of the other one, and their Facebook quickly became everything. Your hospital, your police, everything is on their version of Facebook, and they didn't develop the tech. It was given to them at a picnic or the decision was made at a picnic in 97, 1997 in Silicon Valley. And I've asked this question before. You don't think this is an overarching direction that everyone is heading in. How could it be something as simple as, remember YouTube used to have a star rating system and then they copied, I think it was Facebook with thumbs up and down. How come that wasn't a trade secret? Why didn't Facebook immediately sue Google saying you can't copy this integral part of how people rate things? You see what I'm saying? So when you start to think, why did they give all that tech to China? And then Zuboff makes the claim that China's AI is far ahead. Well, of course it is because their Facebook is all encompassing. They've already gone to social ratings in many places. So their AI is free range AI. You want organic AI? Go to China. Although I suspect we're not far behind them at this point. They've probably also taken the platforms that the Western world developed and have been able to streamline them with more modern technology, making them more efficient. Well, I know one thing for certain. We know that certain sections, you know, you always hear people say that's German engineering. It's like the best in the world. I once read a very old text that said there is no language in the world better for engineering than German. That makes perfect sense. What do we know about the Asian culture? They're very precise And the things that they do are ingenious. Can we forget how many things were invented in China? One of those things being gunpowder, though I don't know if that's a claim to fame, it points the picture. So is it possible that once they were given all that seed tech that they went far beyond what was dreamed of in Silicon Valley? I can't answer these questions, but it doesn't surprise me in the least that Shoshana Zuboff is claiming that China's AI, what they call AI, is way ahead of ours, at least back then. Not surprisingly, Google dominates the search engine market. Since it was introduced in 1997, all other search engines have faced quite a hard time trying to reach the same level as achieved by Google. It seems like there isn't much hope for that changing anytime soon. According to analytics, as of January 2022, Google holds 91.9% of the search engine market share. After that, there really isn't much left. Bing has 
2.88% of the market share, and Yahoo has 1.15% of the total market share. These are followed by Yandex with 1.27% and Baidu with 1.16%. Google makes the majority of its revenue through advertising, but has expanded its services to mail, productivity tools, mobile devices, and other tech-related ventures. Because of all of its endeavors, Alphabet had one of the highest tech company revenue earnings in 2021. Alphabet currently has a $1.25 trillion market cap. Betcha people never thought about the word alphabet in the same way when you comprehend how it's being used here. The bet is that they would be the world alpha. Isn't that really likely why that name was chosen? And I'm sure I could read other reasons, but the one company of the three that are in China, the one I couldn't remember was Baidu, which is mentioned here and it's claimed they're only getting 1.16%, which I find kind of hard to believe. But think about this. Everybody knows that as time has gone on, search engines have become more useless. The main reason is because the searches are designed now not to give you good search returns for what you're looking for. They're designed to get as many clicks out of you as possible. One of the overarching goals of all the AI is a human being has this many seconds in their life, and we want every one we can get. So if I do a, me, Jason and I did it yesterday, as he's pl- planning to go to uh, Flattober, he did a search, I did a search, and he kept finding two articles that were about me. I never could find the second one, only the first one. But I had tried to search three times before. I said, Jason, what are your exact t- terms? Both of us on Google. So what we begin to realize is they care so little about what you're searching about that Anyone who pays attention will remember back in the day, they would claim 10 million page returns and you could get 20, 30, 40 pages in. And sure enough, it was different. Now, anyone, next time you do a search, look at how many search returns they're claiming they gave you. And I would be willing to bet that on the second or the third page at the most, they are now replicating the searches that they gave you on the first and second page. Sometimes it is so blatant, it begins before you get off the first page. The point I'm making, if data collection is such a big deal, then wouldn't you really want to see what we're actually searching for? But here's the kicker. They know you put search terms in. So you didn't get what you were after necessarily, but they got exactly what they after because you put the search terms in. It's it's control on a level that is staggering because of the next generation. And I can't say it enough. Get books, hold books, have a plan for good books, important books to hand them on because the next generations, if we continue on this track, books are going to be the only thing that allows them to have a view backwards that isn't controlled by a Google search return. And accuracy is no longer a value. It's only individualized accuracy, proven by what we did last night. Proven. I'm actually searching for myself for an article that I know a big magazine. It was right at the cusp when magazines were going away and you know forced to put everything online. So what was weird is at the time they still printed, but it was almost done with print. It was all going online. And I couldn't even find an article on myself with the author's name who wrote the article, the publication that did it, and my name. And it took Jason a few minutes, but he got both the articles because he wanted to 
reference them in an upcoming thing that he's doing. Uh, the point I'm making is you have to get it through your head what search returns are now doing. And the problem is everyone acts like, well, we can go to DuckDuckGo or we can really is DuckDuckGo that different? They're claiming they're not taking your data. If that's provably true, that's a good reason to use DuckDuckGo. But do a DuckDuckGo search and do a Google search and just start to compare how different are they? I quite often find that something like DuckDuckGo or Tor if you really want to get crazy, but how did Google deal with places like Tor, usually used for the dark web and a bit like a VPN, making it hard for them to track the data back to its source? Um, go ahead and try to log into a Google account if you're on a VPN and using Tor. Half the stuff won't let you or it'll be broken. Um, I'm just saying. But the main point here is when you get your search return, never forget what the intent of that return is. Maybe a small portion is to give you the information you're after because they have to give you something or you'd quit doing it. The real reason is to take minutes of your life. And how do they do that? Through clicks. Oh, here's the search return you wanted. By the way, did you see this ad of the girl that you dated when you were you know, in junior high school? That'll get a few clicks. Or they've been following you and they know you're a rabid football fan. And look, here's a search return. You know, You can see what I'm getting at. That's what this is actually about. Calculate how many seconds in your life, and then you will begin to get a picture of what they are after. And how could it be any other thing, right? If you look at data and where it has to go, the more data, the more predictive power, whoever predicts the best is the best, which is probably Google, but I don't know. So what will a bot do? Of course, what it will do, it'll calculate how many seconds are in your life predicting or knowing. And doesn't that also tell you that a person they feel like going to die in a couple of years is less important? I'm just saying. Anyhow, Jason. Targeted advertising is one of the most common uses that Google has for the data that it collects on you. If you perform a Google search for a certain kind of product, it is well known that you will then start seeing advertisements for that same product or kind of products everywhere that you go on the internet. This, however, is only just a small part of Google's overall strategy. It collects more and more information about you to form an advertising profile. The more you search for a particular topic, Google will respond. As time and tech have moved forward, Google has been able to deduce information about nearly every aspect of your life. Every search that you conduct adds to the information that Google has on you to continue building your profile. All right. Maybe we should say thank you to Tom Cruise for telling us the truth in such an exciting way. If I'm not mistaken, that was also, what's the big producer's name there, Jason? Minority Report, uh, Spielberg. Isn't that Spielberg's work? Pretty sure. Not sure. But Minority Report is a poke in your damn eye, right? In Minority Report, they're showing that it's gotten to such a fever pitch, they're scanning your eyes to ensure that it's you, then they're targeting you. That's just a little further down the road idea of what's already going on. But now consider the main point of the minority report. You didn't kill someone, but we predicted that you're about to, so you're guilty. And even in the movie, up to the point where the crime was about to happen, the clairvoyant ones were saying, this hasn't happened yet. All you've got to do is make a decision. Which means 
that every second that they arrest you before the crime and throw every right you've ever had out the window was a second where you could have made a choice that changed everything. And yet they're saying this is 99 or 98% certain. Do you see what they are showing you there? A newer feature that Alphabet has added to the Google toolbox is something called Google Lens. This was launched in 2017. Google Lens is an app that's powered by artificial intelligence and machine learning. It helps users identify objects through the use of their smartphone camera. All the user has to do is point their phone's camera at the object in question and ask Google Assistant what it is. New features are always being added. Just a little over a year after its launch, Google Lens was already able to recognize up to a billion individual items. As of 2019, Google Lens has been asked more than 1 billion questions. Its search function isn't just limited to images, however. Google Lens is also able to assist with translating text, with the current capability being more than 100 languages. It has the ability to read text out loud, which is particularly useful for users who have difficulty reading small texts. Needless to say, this is yet another way for Alphabet to collect a ridiculous amount of information to add to its already massive database. And you have just been informed why the young in our world are no longer being taught how to handwrite, also known as cursive. I discovered this some years ago by accident. What I now know is if I'm making an image and I want to write a word that they will probably not be able to scan, I just use cursive. The reason is, is, I mean, how many of us go back to old letters these days and remember in the old days, you'd be reading a letter from someone and a couple things you'd have to figure out, but your brain had clicked over from doing it so often that the length of the word, the overall shape of the characters, you kind of knew even what you couldn't read, plus the context of the sentence. Well, apparently all this AI has real difficulty with so many people having a different style and levels of handwriting as a point. But you should comprehend that the AI is getting better every single day. That's what AI does. And every time algorithms, which I like to call them, to let people know we're talking about code, not a living thing, uh, there will never be the divine spark of life. So why do we call it, why do we imply living things about it? It's damn code. Something like Google Lens, every time they fail, that's the biggest payday they can ever get. If they could spend a whole day failing all day long, each failure will never occur again at the same level. And that would take us towards blockchain, but we're not going there for right now. Here's the point I would make to back up what Jason just said about Google Lens. In surveillance capitalism, China had started to want to go to social ratings and drive everything by cell phones, but they were having real problem with facial recognition. So what they did was they put up kiosks all over certain towns and they said, if you come smile into one of these kiosks, we'll reduce your rent or we'll give you a credit in some way. I think it was reduction of rent. I don't remember. It took them a couple days before they'd solved the problem of face recognition because Chinese people are much more similar than we are. 
similar color of eyes, similar haircut, similar, you know, you've seen China. Um, for someone from the West, it's much more difficult to get used to recognizing individuality because over here, there's a lot more of it. And so that's how they did it. And you know what it was that helped them to figure out how to do the, the facial recognition, like Google Lens is almost certainly involved in? It was what they called micro expressions. I mean, what do you think, Jason? Consider the problem of going to a culture where people are much more similar to each other and fashion is much more ubiquitous. It was the micro expressions that they needed. And so they paid for it and they got what they needed in a day or two. Yeah, absolutely. When I saw that, I wasn't surprised in the least. How else are you going to do it? Well, you don't really want to force people to do it because then they're going to be resistant. So they just offered a little treat for you if you will give them what they want. And all the computer had to do was, okay, so this much stuff is the same on just about everybody. But here, this group of data, this is what's different. And boom, they've got what they needed. And that's that. Think of what it means, Jason, that level of intricacy, uh, recognizing Asian faces in China ported out to other parts of the world. And so now think about, like in my state, they just announced that every cop will wear a body cam. In certain places like downtown London, I am told there are cameras everywhere. What do you think that means? It means everybody's face is already on file. And I would also make the argument that the facial recognition isn't even that big a deal now. They could easily deduce it was you just by where you used your card, the tracking on your cell phone. And by the way, do you know that every unless you take care, every picture you take with a cell phone has the location and the metadata. The first time I realized this was in 2003 because a corporation I was working for got threatened uh, and someone took a picture and emailed it to the CEO. All I did was I took the picture and I threw it in a text reader and I got his GPS. That was all the way back then. So do you, do you comprehend these things? Are you realizing that every selfie, every unless you take means to strip the metadata out, it's locating you. So why would they even really need facial recognition? All the other data that you've provided for that day absolutely tells them where you are at any given moment. As a matter of fact, I would make the statement that it would be nearly impossible if the powers that be didn't want crime anymore, because it's almost impossible to secretly go anywhere and secretly do anything. So in a way, the minority report is already here, just not openly enforced. How could you possibly do a murder and then not be tracked to where you've been that day if someone wanted to take the time? All right. So Jason, is there anything else you want to add? I'm getting ready to, to wrap up hour one of 448. And I'm, we're trying to do this, just everyone listening. I don't want to be the doom and gloom guy, but there's so many things that people need to be aware of. And we need to start subtly changing how we go through a day to deal with these things. I would suggest, Jason, that at the moment, a majority of some kind, or at least 20% of us, maybe, maybe it's the 80-20 rule, start to view this as unacceptable, then change will follow. There is no way for a low vibrational system like this to exist in the higher vibrational future, I guess is how I would put it. I mean, what would you add? Well, at this point, we're in this very deep. So it's up to you to try and fight back against how much data you give them, because no matter what you do or where you go, 
as far as the uh, mainstream Western civilization type is concerned, they're getting data on you no matter what you do. So you have to think long and hard about what additional data that you're going to hand over willingly. That, I mean, come on, that's spot on. What can people do, Jason? They can get these privacy things. If they're already going to run apps on their phone, and by the way, Jason hit it on the head, you think the privacy place is not collecting on you unless they assure you in the agreement they're probably collecting it too. But the point is when the mindset changes and people actively start implementing privacy ideas, that's a big deal. And the other problem here is we just came through a period everyone's aware of. So many people stood up for their rights and many of them got where they were going. So few went the entire distance. And that too is collected data. I suspect that they had already calculated how many people would go all the way with a court proceeding, and it was some ridiculously low low number. So the insurance companies probably knew we'll set aside this nickel or dime, which is change in our pockets. That's just me logically working it out. But we need to wrap up here. There's hour one of episode 448, 448. The first hour is free to everybody at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And as everybody knows, we maintain absolute free speech in the second member hour, which is not publicly posted. There it is. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. And I pray, truly pray with all my heart that people start to take privacy as a real concern because it has the potential to change what it means to live in this world for the rest of time. Cheers.
Belief is the enemy of knowing.